0: Hello and welcome. I am your host Kirsty, and this is Leadership Odysseys. We're embarking on a mission to bridge the gap between aspiration and reality, offering a raw and unfiltered exploration of the behind the scenes challenges that shape true leadership. Join us as we share stories of resilience, turning points, and authentic human experiences that remind us greatness is a product of the entire odyssey, not just the destination. Joining us today is a visionary leader in the fintech industry, Yaneer Yakatwell. Yaneer is the founder and CEO of Lumi, a groundbreaking Australian SME lending platform that he built from the ground up. With a rich background in logistics, finance, and law, Yanir's journey into entrepreneurship is marked by resilience, innovation, and a deep commitment to transforming the landscape of small business lending. Yunir is a seasoned entrepreneur and a thought leader who has successfully navigated the challenges of the startup world. His leadership philosophy revolves around leveraging technology to provide fast, flexible and accessible financial solutions for small to medium-sized enterprises. Under his guidance, Lumi has not only weathered the storms of economic shifts, but has emerged as a key player in reshaping the future of lending in Australia. In today's episode, we delve into Yunir's insights on leadership, innovation and the unique dynamics of the fintech sector. So get ready for a captivating conversation with Ynir, a true pioneer in the world of finance and technology. Welcome to Leadership Odysseys, Yunir.
1: Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure.
0: It's wonderful. And it's wonderful to be out here this morning in your fabulous office. You have incredible views. So a really great environment for all of your team.
1: No, we're very, very lucky. We It was actually very hard to find this office and when we were looking to move to a new office one of the things that for me was a must was to have an outdoor space and i was actually shocked to find out how rare these are in a city like sydney where we've got fantastic weather fantastic views but this the buildings in the cbd and sort of the outer perimeter of the cbd just weren't designed with a lot of outdoor spaces so we were very lucky to find one that we like with a really nice rooftop terrace that we use quite a lot, but probably not as much as I, as I would like. So we should uh, make more, more use of it. But it's something that's really brought the team together and allowed us to do quite a lot of team building in a very informal and sort of natural environment.
0: Oh, that's absolutely fabulous. I'm sure that the team are optimising that space as much as they possibly can. And, yeah, it is absolutely phenomenal. So well done on you finding a little treasure within the city for your team to totally enjoy. Now, let's really dive straight into it because I really want to be able to understand where did your journey begin? Who is Yenia?
1: Yeah, so as my name would would suggest, like my family you know, didn't arrive here with the first fleet, like I'm a first generation Australian. I was born and raised in Israel. I arrived I moved to Australia in an unplanned way i came here i sort of call myself a love immigrant in sort of the back end of the gfc i met a girl in london it's on a blind date it's actually sort of the only it's the only blind date i ever went on in my life and she was living in in australia and sort of long story short i sort of chased came to australia chasing after her and that sort of worked out very well. She's now my wife and the mother of our son. But that's sort of how I ended up in Australia. And I'll sort of go back to that. That sort of, I think, has quite a lot of relevance of how I became an entrepreneur. But I'm Israeli. I grew up and all my formative years in Israel. In Israel, when we finished school, as many of your listeners may know, we have conscription. So I spent three years in, in the Israeli military and then went to university. I did law and economics. I never wanted to be a lawyer I've got quite severe ADHD, so it was probably a very bad career advice to anyone that advised me to study law and even consider the the legal path. And after university, I moved to London, and I, as you mentioned, I spent most of my career sort of on the cusp between shipping and uh, finance and logistics. I was working in the shipping industry on the asset investment side, and I think Israel has a very strong reputation for being a very innovative country and it you know people always sort of ask why you know why is it the startup nation? What is it unique about the Israeli conditions or society that creates so many entrepreneurs? And I, I don't have the exact answer. I've got my own thoughts about it. but I think there are certain things that I look at how I grew up and how I compare, what I think people that are my peers or my vintage grew up in Australia and sort of certain social attributes and how society is structured, which are very different. And I think these cultural attributes translate really, really well into the attributes that are required from entrepreneurs. So, you know, a lot of people look at, you know, the, you know, the massive investment in Israel, you know, sort of military technology and military intelligence. And, and I think all of that is partially true. But I think there's certain social attitudes in Israel around resilience, makeshift, you know, perfect is the enemy of done, etc, that make people that are naturally higher, have a high propensity to take risks. But I think also the social attitude towards failure are very very different to Australia, and that again encourages people to to take risks. Right, like you try and start a company. We all know nine out of ten fail. Isn't if you failed, it's no hard feelings, right? Like you learn. You know, everyone knew what they were getting into, and you know you, you you start again. I think in Australia it's slightly different. I don't know if it's sort of like the other side of the tall poppy coin, but there's definitely a very different attitude towards risk-taking and and, and failure.
0: Oh, I have to agree on yeah. that one, definitely. <laughs>
1: so when when I came to Australia, so going back to sort of the journey, I ended up in Australia, sort of late 30s. I essentially had to reinvent myself, right? So I had a reasonably successful career in London. It was fine, like didn't set the world on fire, but definitely wasn't at a stage in my life that I, I could retire. We... Found ourselves back here. We moved for a very brief stint when my wife was pregnant to to back to the UK. But when, uh, when my when our son was about eighteen months, we moved to Australia. And my wife, who's a doctor, was doing her special was just about to start her specialist training at that time. So and we have no family here, no help. So essentially, I was looking for something to do that would. Be rewarding and you know the the second or the third stage of my career but would also allow me the flexibility to do the drop off the pickups etc because my wife back then didn't and still doesn't have any flexibility with her work right so what better than becoming an entrepreneur now you've got to be very lucky and you know timing has to be uh, on your side and as you mentioned, I, I my background is in law, so I'm not a technologist. But I, one of the things that I felt immediately arriving in Australia is how dysfunctional the financial services system. Like immediately walking into a bank, trying to open an account, getting a debit card. It just seemed so bad. And the fintech wave globally was starting to sort of... Get bigger and bigger, and I saw like a lot of Israeli companies were focusing on the UK, the US, to a lesser degree, Western Europe, but no one was looking in, in into Australia, and I thought actually Australia was the perfect market for for a variety of reasons that we can talk about more in more detail later, and I, I sort of said to myself, listen, money I can understand, I understand, like I'm sure I can do a lending business, I can learn on the go, I've got the gift of the gab, I'm sure I'll be able to 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 raise. Some money and and do it i don't have a job to go into so the opportunity cost was zero and lo and behold you know sort of put things together and obviously it's a very abridged version but you know raise the money built a team decided
0: but, to jump at the opportunity for a gap in the market
1: yeah absolutely and and the and the gap was massive and it was just amazing and there's companies that are starting to do it but i think no one was doing it with a technology first voice. Everyone was trying to make like small incremental changes around different products or slightly different risks where where other lenders weren't doing. But no one said the problem here is actually to be able to scale it, you need to get the technology right. Everything else will come. The funding will come, the risk, the credit, the underwriting. every But you need to be able to get the operational efficiencies and you can get those only from from having a strong technology base. And I think that's what set Lumi apart. So even though we're sort of slight latecomers even to the SME non-bank lending, we were able to scale very, very quickly because we put that emphasis in, in, in technology
0: yeah wow well let's go back just one step there and and you know really you you've made this huge transition from growing up overseas to moving to Australia you've got a young family as well and deciding to dive right into entrepreneurship was there mentors in your life at this particular point in time or even in the earlier years that helped kind of guide you on that journey because it it's not for everyone. It takes a, a huge amount of courage to be able to go. You know what? I'm going to put everything on the table, and I'm going to absolutely solve this problem that's out there in the market.
1: Absolutely. Listen, I, I, I'm very fortunate. I, you know, I was born into a very good family. My, 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 both my parents passed away, but my late dad was a professor. My, my late mum was a psychologist. So, you know, very gilded. You know, middle class upbringing you know access to good education and while neither one of my parents was entrepreneurial in any way shape or form so it's not something sort of from the immediate family in Israel because technology plays such a big part in the economy really the startup founders and people within the ecosystems are local rock stars what in Australia would be I don't know like footy or AFL players and Every you know, young kid wants to become a professional athlete. In Israel, from quite a young age, the cultural heroes. Listen, we also have the sports stars, but like sport doesn't play, as, play such a big role in our culture. It's people that have made it big. So in Australia, I don't know, like the two names that you know come to mind would be I don't know, classic like Mike Cannon Brooks and, and 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 the guys from Canberra who have done really really well. But in Israel, there'll be dozens of those people like that that would be household names and young kids strive for that. So the culture already has such a strong support to take an, an entrepreneurial route in life. whereas I think again, comparing to here, might be changing a little bit recently, but you know if, you know if you went to a good school, you got good HSC, you know you went and do a good degree, at uni you become an engineer etc the expectation is that you i don't know you'll join the cba graduate program and you know if you tell your parents that listen i just want to go and join like a couple of guys or girls doing something cool in surrey hills it's sort of seen as not as good maybe crypto has changed that a lot because a little bit because you know a lot of people made quite a lot of money and you have these sort of cinderella stories but still there's such a strong social imperative into getting a job and sort of pursuing that more traditional professional life which I think is ridiculous right especially when you're young like listen if you're 45 have three kids and a mortgage quitting your job and doing a startup is probably not the most prudent (laughs) thing that you should do but when you're 21 22 after uni
0: give everything a go give
1: it a go right like it doesn't work you know if you're smart enough they'll take you on the graduate program next year and like you know what the graduate program is probably not the best thing that you could do with your life and you could get another job somewhere else but
0: I think the skills you learn in in that space too, versus kind of going down, you know, one division, but more about becoming a generalist to to some degree in those formative years as well of your career, so that you're learning multiple parts. In a startup, you are doing everything, like <laughs> yeah, so it's a great foundation. No,
1: hundred percent, and like not just as an entrepreneur, like just people that join. A couple of weeks ago, we went for lunch with. C- Couple of guys that used to work with us and have consequently left and are doing really really interesting uh, things. We call it sort of the OG, and both of them started straight out of uni. Like I think actually they didn't even finish uni when they started, and they had such amazing experience here. They had such high impact in their roles. You know their ability to learn and drive sort of the direction of their career and you know. Obviously, we were sad to lose them when they decided to leave, but I I understand it was like the right career choice for them, and they're doing amazing things. And I don't think they would have been in the same place in their careers had they chosen a much more structured path early on. And another is necessity, as you mentioned. Like you know, as an immigrant, I didn't. You know, there there wasn't the 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 opportunity cost was was zero. It's not there was a, a really senior, high paying role waiting for me here, which in hindsight was the best thing that ever happened, right? Like if if you know, if there was sort of a gilded cage that was waiting for me, I may not have done it. But going back to the background, I think growing up in Israel and obviously everyone's reading in the news now, things that are happening there, that mean life there is very different from life in Australia. Resilience, stoic things that we learn from a very, very young age. And as I said, like in at 18, we go to the military. So that also shapes you. And I don't, I don't want to go obviously into the political aspects of it. It's completely relevant to, to, to the podcast. But just as an experience of being in the military between 18 and 21, compared to, I don't know, leaving school here, doing a gap year in Europe, you know, spending some time in Mykonos, etc. It just shapes you in a very, very different way and I think it gives you a resilience that is very very hard to acquire if in a different path of life now obviously the people that are more or less resilient from different places but I think this is a sort of as a resilience school nothing compares to it and I think that is probably the biggest differentiator between Israel and Israelis and people from other countries in terms of how we approach life.
0: Yeah, it's probably that level of empathy that's in there as well. Like you, you've you really been out there and, and you have seen what the world is like. And But I think from a resilience perspective, there is a big gap in the market today in resilience coming through in leadership. And, you know, it's a, it's a hard thing to teach because it is something that you've got to be able to grow a muscle for over your life journey. So knowing that you've experienced a lot of that in those, you know, real formative years, is amazing that you can now not only for yourself in how you show up as a founder every day, but also for your team in being able to get the best out of them as well.
1: No, absolutely. And I think it's it's something that I challenge, A, as a founder and as a CEO of a business, but it's also something that is a challenge as a parent, right? Like it's, you know, you raise, my son's 12 now, and it's a constant balance between Trying to provide them, you know, the best life and experiences that you possibly can, but also balancing that with preparing them for life. And life is not just sort of rainbows and unicorns and life is hard and you want them to have resilience and have ambition and, and have all the attributes that I think are required to have like a interesting and fulfilling life.
0: not agree anymore especially as a parent myself it is one of the biggest you know parts of life i want to be able to teach our children is that resilience is that courage is failure failure is normal and it needs to happen so that you can be the best version of yourself and for everyone around you as well yeah so really diving into looming As you know, you've now you're over here in Australia. You've taken the courage to go. Well, I'm going to make my dreams come true, and I'm going to be able to to really solve for this problem in the market in the fintech landscape. Even though you haven't worked in fintech prior, how did that all begin? What was the the founding parts to to be able to start Lumi? What was that initial vision?
1: So the as I said, so the vision was always centered around technology. Even though I'm not a technologist, and I didn't understand then and I barely understand now how the technology actually works in reality like I think I have a very strong understanding of the philosophy behind it and what it needs to do and what is the problem that it's trying to solve in the abstract and I've been very very lucky to have a very strong tech team that's headed by like an unbelievable PTO which is actually another example of someone you know, going back to the previous point he joined us very early in their career who actually did work for cba at the very very beginning in a cubicle and was able to grow super super quickly and and, and now is is the cto and he's not even 30 but really the, there's so many inefficiencies in the process in financial services for a variety of reasons like the the reason the banks are inefficient is not because the people that run them or the people that work there uh, incompetent or stupid. That's not the problem. The problem is banks are not designed to be efficient. Banks are designed to be robust. And and that's probably one of the biggest takeaways of global financial regulation post the GFC is we need to regulate the banks that whatever happens in the world, banks in Australia and other first world countries will not fail. The US is slightly different because they've got a slightly different banking models with a lot of small and medium banks, but most Western countries have, you know, several big banks. So that's the fundamental issue within financial services globally, and that creates an opportunity within verticals that have a lot of value, but have a lot of operational inefficiencies that can be automated. And SME lending or small business lending is the perfect Example, because there are no two small businesses that are like so. Like to understand what a small business is and to understand how they work and to underwrite them is very complicated. Whereas if you take the, the typical credit product that a bank has, and especially in Australia where home ownership is a is a big social force, mortgages. A mortgage. Clearly, I'm oversimplifying it, but at the end of the day, whether you're doing a mortgage for a hundred million dollar house on Sydney Harbour or for a $300,000 unit in an outback secondary city in Broken Hill, or wherever the case may be, it's essentially the same, right? What is the value of the property? You know, And you look at the earner, how much do they make? What are the expenses? You know, Put a few factors in, in terms of the calculation, and you get an affordability, right? It's very, very standardized. Now, anyone that's in mortgages will jump up and down and say it's a lot more complicated than that. I get it, but it's relatively cookie-cutter. In SME lending, it's completely, completely bespoke. So if you take, let's say, a coffee cart that's in the building here, it's different from like a coffee cart that goes, you know, someone in a van that does coffee and goes between parks on a Saturday to do the school sports and hospitality venues are all different and they have different ownership structures. So it's very, very, very hard. A lot of these businesses or the business owners, especially on the small end, it's very hard to differentiate between what is the business and what is the owner. And banks have historically looked at those businesses as an extension of their personal lending. They'll come and say, listen, you know, this is, you know, your house, this is how much equity you've got, you know, whatever your business is, you know, will extend a certain amount of risk based on your personal characteristics. And and banks are also really focused on asset lending. They say, listen, you want to buy a car, the car's worth 50 grand. You know, you put the 10 grand deposit, we'll lend you 40, you know, drive it. We know how that works. But bank struggle with abstract assets or receivables, cash flow, and that's where we where we came in. And the advantage that a business like Lumi has, and again, going back to the technology and the automation, we take a portfolio approach, right? Like this, we don't look at any of these borrowers. From a risk perspective, when we underwrite, we hope that all of them will pay back and we won't have any defaults, but we understand that that's not the business that we're in, and we look at it holistically. We, you know, we've got a portfolio. We wrote X loans. We expect Y loans to have some sort of a problem with them, and let's say Z loans would completely default. And we'll And that's fine as long as it's within the model, It's as long as it's within the parameters, but the banks, because the business lending is done through the prism of personal lending, their tolerance is very, very low. The minute like a loan goes bad, it's, you know, the banker feels bad and it's going to like impact their career and like the, you know, their performance review, et cetera, et cetera. So their tolerance is much lower than where it should be. But also another thing that banks struggle with for a variety of reasons is to price for risk, right? So again, taking the example of like mortgages, the differential between the top end of the market, AAA credit, and someone at the bottom end of the distribution of what a bank will do, in terms of pricing, is very, very small. At some point, the bank just won't lend to you, right? But So that's how they manage their risk is, is sort of binary. Yes, lend, no lend, as opposed to being able to say, listen, Johnny, you're great. We'll price you here. Bobby, listen, you're not so great. We'll price you here and everything in, in, in between. And that's something that allows us to price for the risk of where the banks sort of turn off, instead of being able to to fund it and price it according. Now, the banks are actually active in the space because they fund us. So it's I think for them it's a lot more efficient from a variety of parameters, but mostly from the capital allocation point of view. And that's going back to the to the.
0: We well, are taking reg- a lot of the risk as well.
1: Well, we're t- taking most of the risk. So we'll put the, so we've got the skin in the game is we've got the first loss provision, but they're, they're funding us and we've got. Other, so they're getting exposure to the market, but at a risk level that's appropriate for them. And, and going back to the initial point, right They are not designed to be innovative, to be have good product. They're designed to be robust, and that's the social function they play. They're essentially utilities in the same way that, you know, the power generators and the water company, et cetera, the government broadly defined regulators are not willing to take the risk that any of these companies will fail, right? And that creates the opportunity for the innovators within the periphery of those ecosystems.
0: That's right. Yeah. And, I mean, like look at fintech just in the, the last three years alone, it's just grown significantly. Yeah. When was it that Lumi actually launched?
1: End of 2018, so October end of October 2018.
0: Yeah, wow. So it really has come in as a a bit of a disruptor within that space from a lending capacity for these small businesses.
1: No, absolutely. And so end of 2018. So November 2018 was our first trading month. And December, we all know what happened in 2020, 2021. So those were very challenging years. And I think really the watershed moment for us was coming out of COVID, because there are a lot of lenders roughly of our size, and we're subscale, we're a minnow when going into COVID, that just didn't make it through the pandemic. But once we came out of the pandemic, it was a very different competitive landscape. Then we also got instit- better institutional funding at the end of 2020. And then it's sort of been quite a steep growth trajectory. But again, with a lot of challenges, now we've got, you know, rising rates, a slowing economy. so. It hasn't been plain sailing for us pretty much from from launch.
0: A bit of an adversity along the, the your resilience yeah, is kicking yeah. in and and probably helping guiding that team through that time as well on that with COVID it you know, I mean it was it was hard for a lot of businesses and yes there was a lot of wins within that space as well but it definitely was a really really hard time with so much uncertainty during it. This is still you're still quite new in the startup landscape as you were going through this. What were some of those adversities that you were challenged with during that time and especially from a team perspective as you would have been building a team at that particular point in time and you know were you able Hmm. to hold on to them?
1: So I'll start with the team so yes so we actually didn't make a single person redundant during COVID and we had the team was much smaller than it is now but it was sort of reasonably big for where we were in terms of the business and as you'd imagine, business fell off a cliff. What we did, instead of making the team redundant, I think that was one of the reasons why we came out of the gates when COVID ended so fast, is we didn't need to rebuild the team again. We made salary sacrifices across the board. So every single person that was working within the business took a salary cut. And the more senior you were, the bigger the cut was, not just in dollars, but in percentage. So we made it in a way that we would keep everyone and actually we had a few people come to us and said listen you know johnny that sits next to me i know you know he's got a family why don't you cut a little bit more for me and give a little bit more for them so there was really brought the team together and we paid them as when we came out of COVID with equity for the salary they're for so a we paid them for the rest that they took but it also created much Bigger employee participation in the business, so that was the first thing. Like it was really imperative for us to keep the team together. That's incredible leadership,
0: by the way. I, I think, like I've, you know, you hear different stories on leadership, but to, to have actually been so well thought out for every individual team member is exceptional.
1: Every single one. So not even people that were on a visa and we didn't get job keeper for them. We said, like, listen, you're out. No, we're a team. Listen, we'll take all the job keeper. We'll put it in the pool and then we'll sort of spread it through everyone so that was the, the first in terms of the the team but at, at, the, at the early days of COVID, i literally thought every morning i was waking up and going to work thinking we're going to go bust right because once lockdown started and before all the government programs and initiatives commenced into job keeper job seeker a few others essentially more than half of our borrowers called up and said we can't pay. Now, we've got, we lend out, but we also borrow, right? So we had like the mismatch between our facilities and our ability to collect. So we, again, we were very lucky. Our funder at the time was very supportive. They helped us, you know, work through it. We actually lent throughout the cycle. So even at the very early days of the first lockdown, on a much smaller scale but we still lent to some defensive businesses we essentially shifted the entire sales team to customer support collections hardship team so we started working with all the with all the borrowers and it's a very different type of collections than the regular ordinary course of business collections when you know someone takes a loan they can't pay obviously we work with them but you know these loans that have gone bad you know tip Sometimes these are people that it's not the first time that you know they've had an interaction with the collections department during COVID. These are people, some of them never in their wildest dream thought that they'll not pay a bill on time or get a call from. So it was a very very different tone of call. It was a very different sort of restructuring work. Again, then you know the government came with quite a lot of initiatives and helped us, helped businesses, and helped other lenders. But at least at the early stage of COVID, we were uncertain that we would make it through. You know, it was also hard to raise capital. Like you just it's not just, listen, will the people pay you back, right? Like when are we going to open? when a business like are restaurants ever going to open again? Right. Like now it's sort of hard to look back because it's sort of two years, but like sort of March, April, May of 2020.
0: Oh significant. Yeah,
1: like you yeah. know, no one knew what the future would look like. Like would we ever like will international travel be ever open again? Like some of these businesses, like you literally didn't had no idea if they'd ever survive because would society change something. Now, looking back, it didn't change as much as people think. Like we sort of reverted to to the mean, but it was an extremely, extremely tough time. Plus On top of that, the operational challenges of running a business, you know, moving, you know, people work, moving to working from home, you know, you can't travel, you know, all these sorts of things. How do you onboard people? But those are sort of challenges that were common to all businesses were probably a little bit easier for us because we were a little bit smaller and more nimble, but it was, it was a very, very tough time.
0: Yeah. What did you do for yourself during that time so that you could show up as the best version of yourself for your team? What was happening behind the scenes?
1: So I was in the office all the time, just to keep keep it going. And we had, while well, meeting all the the rev- relevant regulations, we had like skeleton teams. For me personally, one of the things that I did during COVID was a little bit different from what others did. I could. I've never been a big drinker. I'm not a big drinker now, but I completely stopped drinking and actually got really, really fit. So I trained every single day and and got into the best shape that I've been for for a long period of time. And I think that really helped me physically, helped me mentally. I think... Clarity. Clarity. It's also helped some of the team because we got into it. Some of us, we did it together. and, and, And that focus, like there's a responsibility. So many people... Have entrusted their lives and their careers in your hands. You know, you just, you just had to to get on with it. I think, from sort of a personal, such family point of view, maybe it was a little bit easier for me, because my wife kept on working almost as wasn't like normal because in the hospital it was very different with you know the the, the safety equipment etc. But she worked every day out of home etc. So we never had that in home. Working from home vibe um, okay. in, in our family. So maybe that gave us sort of a, a, a bitter sense of normality yeah. that, that others struggled. We only have one son. He came with me to the office. Then, sort of, we saw that was a, a waste of time. So he spent those two years pretty much like building bike ramps with his friends in the park. But he was Love fun. That. Yeah, yeah no, that was great. <laughs> so he wasn't struggling. But I, I know from a lot of people, both from Lumi and, you know, from social circle that a lot of people struggle, you know, with kids and do that. Do we have enough laptop? Do we have, like, room at home for all? So we're fortunate that we didn't have any of those, but I think people that had, it was really, really tough.
0: Yeah, and so you spoke about the the whole bike riding yeah. and then your son as well building bike <laughs> ramps. And I have seen, as I was preparing for this podcast, you do like to do a lot of bike riding. Was mountain bike riding on high on your list during that time?
1: Literally every single day, without fail, at five o'clock in the morning, I went for for a bike ride.
0: It's pretty yeah. incredible yeah. we live on the the central coast and i have to say we were very blessed to have that area during COVID as well but my husband he, he enjoys getting out and doing mountain bike riding as well and and to have yeah all of that scenery around us and it would be the same for you around here as well is just getting out and enjoying making the most yeah. of it really
1: so the central coast is great i actually had a really nasty biking accident in the central coast in September so I haven't been able to ride since then. That's
0: not good to hear. Which mountain were you on? I was in Arimba. (laughs) Okay yes that's well known for that so but not good to hear at all but yes a phenomenal area to go bike riding. You've
1: got to take the good with the bad like you do extreme sports and sometimes you get injured.
0: Ah that's exactly right. I want to take a moment to introduce you to Naturally Gloom Free where lifestyle meets quality. Naturally Gloom Free is a boutique bakery committed to crafting exceptional gloom free products that are produced with high quality natural ingredients and free from all additives and preservatives. When you are seeking to transform your menu or source a premium gloom free product, Naturally Gloom Free invites you to connect with them via their website. Naturallyglutenfree.com.au. So going back to your team and culture, you can feel it when you walk through here straight away, just with how bubbly and the energy and everything coming, you know, from this environment. How have you led that culture? Like what are the values that you really install into this, you know, into Lumi overall?
1: So the first one is lead by example. So, you know, there's nothing that's too small or too junior for me to do. Like we're all a team. It's very, very flat. The second is build like a really strong team around you. There's the adage, you know, better to have a first-rate team and a second-rate product than a you know, first-rate product and a second-rate team, right? So I think the people that... I've built around me and you know we the core team we've worked together for for quite a long time phenomenally talented people that have been really empowered in their in their roles you know i don't micromanage i know they're much smarter than i am they're much more knowledgeable about their roles and you know everything that's underneath them so like my job is to sort of facilitate for them to be able to do the best job that they can within their verticals as opposed to sort of interfering and I think then it, that translates downwards to the teams that they, that they build. I think another thing that's really important, and maybe it's sort of a first derivative of the flat structure, is we're very open throughout the organization. And that becomes much harder the bigger you become. You know, when you start, you know, you're five, seven, you know, you're all friends, you all go for lunch or dinners together. Now, you know, we're over 100 people. It's hard to maintain that culture that every person, regardless of their role or this level of seniority, should feel free to come and voice an idea or a thought, whether it's how do we improve the product or how they feel about the office or, you know, you know, change something that they, you know, they want to order for the kitchen. But that's something that we really, really try and and foster. I don't have an office, I'm in an open space. Here, you know, the the various teams, I make sure that, like, you know, everyone feels that's comfortable approaching me about, you know, whether it's a professional thing or just, you know, a joke or, you know, always, you know, when someone would go out, again, it becomes harder and harder, the bigger you get. But, like, I go out and I'm asked, getting a sandwich or getting a drink, like, I'd always ask, like, who wants one, right? So it's not unusual you know, for me to get the round of coffees for everyone or anything like that. And it's done in a sincere way, because we that's genuinely how I feel about sort of the office and Lumi. It's genuinely how the senior team around me feels like it's a very welcoming office. And because we do that, we're actually not really struggling getting people back to the office, because the office is a nice place to be. So we offer the flexibility and some people want to come you know, a few days a week or whatever it is, you know, they work it out within their teams and their managers. But when you walk into the office, everyone's happy to be here. Everyone's smiling. I've got zero tolerance for people that sort of a negative energy, regardless of how competent they are. I spend most of my day here. I don't want to be around people I don't like. I don't want people around people that are sort of miserable in their job. I take it upon myself to make sure to the greatest extent possible people are happy here they feel welcome you know we've got all the facilities obviously the kitchen you know the the the, we spoke about the the rooftop you know the ping pong you know so you know work hard play hard but it's just as easy to be nice and make it a nice place as it is to be an asshole.
0: I agree. Yeah. And we've all got to be accountable for yeah. how we show up to work as well. You can have the best environment for everyone, but at the end of the day, everyone's also got to be accountable for themselves. Mindset behind the scenes, how they show up, the energy that they bring to the people around them and how they take care of people. Yeah,
1: yeah. And, and the expectations are high, right? So it's, you know, we really value you if you're a member of staff here. We really appreciate it that you chose us as your employers and the vector of your career. But the flip side is, like, we've got very high expectations of you and you've got to meet those expectations. And working for a startup is not for everyone, right? Like, if this is not for you,
0: yeah,
1: doesn't mean you're bad, doesn't mean you'll have a bad career somewhere else. It means you don't have the set of attributes that's required to work in a startup. Find out what you're good at and try and leverage that somewhere else.
0: Yeah, no, could yeah. could not agree anymore. I think that's great yeah. advice for everyone because startups are not for everyone. It's a whole different skill set and mindset that comes with it, in- including the risk, even if you are one of the team members, because you are going on that journey of a little bit of uncertainty in there, even with a really of strong vision. So no, of
1: and the stress and the demands and you know, you have to be a you know self starter and the whole list.
0: Agility agility (laughs) of
1: attributes that some people have and some people don't. But it's not a bad thing. We, We don't need to look at it sort of in a qualitative way. I don't have the skills to be a fighter pilot, right? Like, so I, I didn't become a fighter pilot, I went and did something else.
0: Yeah. So how do you find your team? Like is there a natural approach now of people just, you know, starting to talk more about Lumi and, and when those roles do open that you're able to build from your network? Or yeah, how have you found like some of your original team members that have come on board?
1: So Anna, who's my she's the deputy CEO, we've worked together for a really long time it was actually an introduction through a friend of mine from business school and he introduced between us and we clicked and we've worked together for well, since the inception of Lumi. Paul, our CTO, was was now our CTO. He actually, you know, started as a as a junior front end developer. We hired him because we had like a, a small project that we needed and then we realized like listen this guy's actually smarter than all of them let's you know sort of promote him through the ranks he was recruited through another guy that was working for us and they worked together previously so there's definitely been a lot of um within the network hiring now there's also a lot of in the network hiring within the team so you know people at the risk team or the credit team they need to hire someone that's within there network and I think it's a testament to how people enjoy working at Lumi that you know they want to bring you know friends former colleagues etc to come work for Lumi But, but recruitment is hard it's hard to find good people it's hard to find motivated people and that's always been one of the big challenges in sort of scaling up but also one of the challenges is also as as we grow is you want to maintain the culture that you had as a small team not necessarily exactly the same because the culture itself also has to evolve because you know culture that was suitable for seven or eight people that are also personally very close is not necessarily the best culture for a team of 120 or 150 people that while have a really good most of them professional professional relationship are not personal friends. And that's fine. Not every person within a hundred person team has to be best friends with all the other 99 people. So extrapolating that culture for a larger and larger team when also me personally, but also the immediate management team or founding team have less and less control over consequent hires. So that's something that is constant challenge. I think we've done it reasonably well. There have been mistakes along the way, but the key is if you think there's a mistake is to correct it straight away in that respect you've got to be quite unemotional about these things and your focus has to be the benefit of Lumi, as opposed to sort of feeling uncomfortable and is it the right thing to do and it's you know two weeks before christmas and like you have to sometimes make very very hard and painful and personally very difficult choices or decisions but that's the responsibility that you have as a leader as a leader
0: that's that's exactly right. Well, it sounds like you have recruited some phenomenal people on this journey that are really setting the scene for taking you well into the future as you begin to scale. No, as well. absolutely. Yeah. And on the on the scale side of it, you have recently undergone some significant capital raises uh, for Lumi, including a recent 15 million and then 20 million infusions. Can you walk us through the strategic importance of these raises and how they'll position Lumi for that future growth?
1: Yeah. So, like any business, we need capital. Like a lending business, we need a lot of capital. So we're a very capital intensive business. And we went through a journey sort of raising capital from t- different types of investments. So being a lending business, which is slightly different from other startups, we have essentially three types of capital. We have regular equity, like any business, we raise it, and that's to pay to develop the software, to pay for the office, the salaries, etc., the ongoing working capital of the business. We have debt that we borrow from wholesale funders, and we use that money. And the third source of capital is is what we call the first loss provision or equity within the lending, how many cents on the dollar of every dollar that we lend out, how much of that is our own Lumi money. And we fund that with equity. So the equity journey, we started, our first pool of investors were family offices, very big family offices, predominantly in Melbourne, but really sort of the 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 top end of town, and, and they were very, very supportive. The second phase of the equity investments came from smaller institutional investors, so Perennial, the local fund manager, they cornered B-Round, and our former funder from Israel co-cornerstoned our sort of second iteration of the B-Round. And really the strategy going forward, and this is um, the last round that you mentioned, is to get a larger institutional investor because also the investors that we need are the type of investors that can write bigger and bigger checks. So it's not typically sort of your early stage tech investors in Australia that write sort of, I don't know, anywhere between one and five. Listen, some of the big ones maybe go sort of 15 and more. We need sort of financial sponsors that have really big balance sheets. And typically those type of investors are pension or in Australia superannuation funds, insurance companies, et cetera, that can deploy really large amounts of money to help grow a balance sheet business. That's why it was really strategic for us to get a financial sponsor. And we specifically liked insurance because insurance has very long-term view in terms of their assets. And we also wanted to go offshore because we wanted to diversify our funding our funding pool away from Australia because we're very, very concentrated on Australia in terms of all our borrowers are here. So you know, if there's a downturn, if there's something happens, we wanted to be able to have access to offshore sources of capital to slightly diversify um, that risk.
0: Yeah, it's well thought yeah. out.
1: And on the debt, the, the key was always so. Initially, we funded ourselves with a credit fund, which, which consequently, we paid them out are now quite big um, equity investors within Lumi. But the the vision was always to get a big four funding line, and that that's literally sort of the north star of a business like this when you started. It's essentially the race to get, like, big four funding. In Australia, it's typically NAB for a variety of reasons. They've sort of positioned themselves as the, the first funder to FinTech. Like they've got a really phenomenal team that supports that part of the business and we were very lucky to get their support in end of 2020 and you know sort of going back to how COVID went and how luck is important we had their on-site due diligence meeting in our office the day they announced like the lockdowns. so and that was cancelled a couple of times so and if that would have been postponed by another week because someone on the team couldn't make it because one of their kids had like to- needed to have their tonsils taken out, or and it would have been postponed, we wouldn't have had that team that meeting before lockdown, and I don't think we would have had enough traction through lockdown to get the deal done at the end of end of 2020. So all
0: of those dots connected yeah. perfectly at the right timing, by the sounds of it.
1: You have got to be lucky.
0: Yes, there there is a level of luck, but also probably a, a really strong network and, and things coming together from, you know, your hard work in, in building those relationships over time as well.
1: Oh, of course, but I think people underestimate the importance of luck. It is really, really important. And looking back at the journey, there have been a few sliding door moments that things could have gone just as probably, probable to have gone the other way And if they had, it would have been game over.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Gosh, pivotal moments, that's for sure. So on the funding, there's going to be, you know, lots of founders, entrepreneurs listening today and when this podcast goes live. But what would be your advice? Because there is still so much unspoken around how to actually get funding when you've got this great concept. You know you're going to be able to solve problems in the market. Where do they really start with trying to to source funding here in Australia?
1: So I think it really depends which stage of the journey you are if you know if it's seed funding, we sort of leapfrogged over that stage because we're a capital intensive business. we to get going, we needed a big pool of capital that's much bigger than your traditional startup that would raise I don't know half a million or sort of a couple of single digit millions from. Angels, but I think that stage is really focused on angels and a few early stage VCs. But I think the key is leverage your network, have a lot of chutzpah. You know, it's shoe leather. At the end of the day, there's no formula, right? Like what worked for me wouldn't necessarily work for someone else. Circumstances have changed, the business changed, investors changed. You just got to bang on doors, have A lot of resilience, you know, you're going to get hundreds of no's. You're going to get, like, worse than no's are the maybes because, listen, a no's a no, right? Like a maybe sometimes is it, isn't it? Sometimes people euphemize it. They don't want to tell you no. They don't want to be the first one to say no just to keep an option open. But it it goes back to the the resilience, but also I think the chutzpah and – just having that determination that you've got to you've you've got to do it and it comes from very surprising sources i was our previous office when we're in bondi junction when we're doing like our b raise. i literally went to all the offices in the building knocked on the door some of them i knew by name some of them i sort of saw in the lift introduced myself Said, you know, this is this is what we're doing. We're doing a raise, etc., and we raised money that way. Like not enough to carry the raise, but we raised a significant amount of money by literally just knocking on the doors of the offices that were in our building, and people liked the idea. I think in terms of, I'm a founder, so I'm not. I can't speak for investors. I, I'm sure you've um, interviewed a lot of investors. But I think one of the key things that investors would look at when they're looking at someone, whether to fund them or not, especially at the early stage, because you're selling a dream, they've got to be confident of two things. A, can you deliver what you sell? Broadly deliver, right? Like you can change, you can pivot, et cetera. But like, do you have the gumption, the wherewithal to do it? And I think the second is, do you have the motivation to do it like do you have enough skin in the game that if we give you our money like you'll do everything within your power to try and execute on a plan it's not like a part-time job it's not like a like are you wholeheartedly committed do you have the hunger to do it because if you don't then it's unfair for you to ask for other people's money to invest in you because at the very early stages they're actually investing in you they're investing in that They look at the numbers and they look at the presentation, but everyone knows it's bullshit, right? Like, it's not going to work out that way. They're investing in you. Are you the type of person that they can trust to take their hard earned money and turn it into a profitable business? And you have to convince yourself that you want to do it, right? Like, that's, you know, the first thing is you should convince yourself are you cut out to be an entrepreneur? Because it's not you know, sex, drugs, and rock and roll, like it's a lot harder than people, you know, imagine, you know, the highs are very high, but the lows are very low. And, you know, like, is that the journey that that's you're right. willing to undertake?
0: Yeah, I think that's a great advice to to be able to offer and because you're spot on there. The highs are highs and everyone, a lot of people see that and compare to go you know, look where they are, but they don't see there are those lows. And, you know, quite a lonely journey on that one as well, because you are wanting to put everything into the business and everything, you know, that internal hunger to make sure it succeeds. And so your whole world is wrapped around ensuring that you, you're driving that vision forward and, and shaping the future. But some, yeah, I think that's some some great advice. And really, it, it comes down to your heart, right? You're, you're sharing your message that Out there in the world and and getting people to truly believe in that message is going to be able to solve some great problems yeah yeah wow so what's next for Lumi?
1: so 2024 is going to be a big year for us we've really put a lot of investment in the back of house infrastructure in terms of risk and underwriting but also sales and distribution so we're going to have a few very exciting new products coming out in 2024
0: Sounds exciting.
1: No, it's very, very exciting. We, we're really ambitious on growth. We, we're cognizant of the headwinds in terms of the economy and rising rates. But given the, the risk and underwriting, we're very, very confident in our underwriting now. So I think we can sort of risk on quite, quite a lot. But we're very, very focused on new products. For us, I think in terms of a strategy, the key is to be like that multi-product offering, as opposed to being like a one-trick pony. And once you get a customer, to be able to offer them a whole suite of credit products, but that in a lending business obviously requires a lot of infrastructure and funding. But we we're, we're now at that place where we can when we can really launch new products that are very differentiated from our existing products and not just sort of small iterations.
0: Well, it sounds like you've got a very exciting journey ahead and the, the team must be yeah. ready to go.
1: We're very, everyone should take a little bit of time off now, Christmas, New Year, and come with recharged batteries in the new year because 2024 is going to be a big year for us.
0: Oh, that is so good to hear. Well, Yanir, I like to ask all of the guests on the show for a few words of wisdom that they can really pass on to the aspiring leaders, founders of Tomorrow. What would be the most invaluable lessons that you have gained that you would like to share with the leaders of Tomorrow? For me,
1: like, perfect is the enemy of done. And, you know, a lot of people, especially high achievers and, you know, You know whether they, you know, to go to good schools because they come from sort of privileged backgrounds and they do really well, or you know they're really smart and they go to a selective school or whatever. Like we're really conditioned from very young age to do the best that we can, and we're really conditioned to achieving really high, which is really important, right? But when you're building a business, like you can't get perfect, and I think a lot of times people focus on getting things to a certain level where the marginal utility is so low, is so low just listen so just move ahead you know be care, cut corners because but be careful with which corners you cut right but and it's also much easier to ask for forgiveness than for permission but again be strategic in how you do it but building a business being a startup like it's a disruptor like you're breaking things you're sort of going into certain outside of comfort zones of other businesses or competitors, etc., Don't be fearful of, you know, sort of being abrasive, upsetting people, but be really focused on executing. And as I said, it doesn't have to be perfect every step of the way. You just make sure it's good enough, launch it, go do something sort of the next stage because otherwise you'll sort of be be bogged down. And I think that's the biggest challenge like the high achievers sometimes have sort of transitioning from sort of the school, uni world where they always want to get A's or, you know, beyond the A's, you know, for sport, et cetera. Yeah, it's important, but like getting stuff done, right? And getting it done quickly and moving on and building those incremental things. At the end, you'll, you'll achieve a much bigger outcome than trying to sort of perfect every step. But be careful because certain things you do have to perfect. So just think where where you focus your your effort because it's a finite
0: it Sure yeah. is. That is phenomenal advice. Thank you very much. You are once again spot on. I think that Gosh, when you're moving at such a, a fast-paced environment and, you know, you're really trying to put center the customer at the center of everything yep. that you're doing, you have to just keep moving. You you can't have that you know, everything perfect wrapped around it and, you know, you, you've really got to just be able to go get it out there, continue improving, go again, l- make mistakes and, and, you know, really build that muscle for the, the long term.
1: But be strategic where you make the mistakes. So for us, for instance, you know, we deal with people's money and bank accounts. So... For instance, anything relating to that, we've got zero zero tolerance for mistakes or errors, et cetera. Right, that's something that's fundamentally in our business. But other things, right? Like, if it doesn't impact the customer, it's not like a, a a big deal. Do it, and then let's focus on something else that would have like a big marginal benefit to the business.
0: Love it. Well, thank you, Yanir, for generously sharing your incredible journey and insights with us today. Your story from the early years that shaped you to the innovations at Lumi is truly remarkable and offers valuable lessons to aspiring entrepreneurs. We wish yourself and your team all the best as you continue to grow Lumi and we will be watching your journey closely. I'm sure there will be a few very big and exciting years ahead for all of you. Thank you.
1: Thank you very much for having me.
0: Thank you for joining us on this incredible odyssey. Until next time, lead with courage, lead with heart, and keep exploring the remarkable world of leadership. Enjoyed the journey? Hit the subscribe button, rate us, and leave a review if our stories ignited your leadership spirit. Your feedback fuels our odyssey.